Plopcast. This is episode 66. Hard to believe I've done this 66 times, but there you go. I have. So, welcome to the Plopcast. Thank you for joining me. I know that you could be doing something else, so great. I want to talk, uh, in current events, I want to talk about something that's going on as I'm recording this. It's probably still going to be going on when you're when you listen to this, but or if it's not going on, something very much like it will be. Um, as we, as I record this, uh, a caravan of thousands of ostensible refugees is marching toward the um, U.S.-Mexico border from Central America, and this uh, this is calculated, obviously, uh, to happen. Uh, in coordination with our midterm elections. And so the question is, what, what are Christians to think of this sort of thing? What, what are we to make of it? First, um, there is, we, we want to reject from the outset a simplistic understanding of, um, of what compassion means. Um, and the mistake, the, 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 the way this sort of thing usually works is uh, it's playing on the tendency that we have to confuse uh, the duties of an individual, Good Samaritan-like, you know, a, a, a Good Samaritan-type duties. You find a guy beat up by the side of the road uh, who was a neighbor to him, well, the one who took him to the inn and paid, paid for his uh, stay there and who um, applied medicinal oil and so on. That, that guy was the neighbor to him, the priest and the Levite who crossed over and passed by the other side was not his neighbor. Now, if you take that sort of um, situation and you apply apply it straight across to nations, you're going to find yourself in um, in a bind because the dynamics, the variables are wildly different. What do I mean? Well, uh, let's say you find a guy beat up by the side of the road uh, and you help him out, you help a guy out, that's pretty straightforward. And you know that the help you're providing actually is help. But what does it mean to find a country beat up by the side of the road? What, what does that look like exactly? And if you have a country that is in shambles and you send a bunch of money to that country and the dictator running it uses the money to feed his army, which is the reason the country's in shambles, you're not really helping. So it, it, it's sort of like, um, what, would, what would the parable of the Good Samaritan have meant if, um, if the Good Samaritan had flunked every first aid class he ever took? And he didn't know that you weren't supposed to move a guy in that condition, and he moved him anyway, getting him onto his donkey and broke his neck. All right, now, <laughs> who, was, who was that man's neighbor? Well, you, you can't, uh, it's not for nothing that the ancient Hippocratic Oath uh, starts with first, do no harm. Whatever you, whatever you do, don't make the situation worse. Whatever you do, don't make the situation worse. Now, with this caravan heading toward the, our southern border, just in time for our elections, and you have thousands of people on the march, there are, there are some amazing logistical details that have to be involved with that. This, this whole thing is a stunt. It is agitprop. It is theater in the round. It is being done for the cameras. Now, 
if if you have you know let's say you um you live in a house on on a border on the border and someone who's genuinely a refugee flying from oppressive tyranny an oppressive tyrannical government is trying to kill this person they barely make it across the border and they make it to your house do you take them in well of course well of course you take them in so when we see a soldier running for the border between North Korea and South Korea, and he scrambles across and he makes it, uh, every good-hearted person cheers that person on. He wants him, we want genuine refugees to make it across the border. But this caravan is not about people in trouble trying to uh, find a place to stay. This is about immigration policy. This is not about individual refugees who, if they're turned away, are going to be in a world of hurt. Um, you don't. Um, if people are flying from a a country that is uh, a failed state or an oppressive regime or a tyrannical setup, and they're fleeing toward another country as a country of refuge, they don't do that flying the flag of the country they're fleeing from. That's this. This whole thing is being done for the sake of public opinion, uh, public impact. It's being done for the cameras so that uh, people can get good footage that can be used in our debate over immigration policy. Now, when you're talking about immigration policy, you're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and you can't, uh, you can't make policy on the basis of a photograph or a video of a child crying at the border. That's not, that's not, that's not what grown-ups do. Um, so what's, what's happening here is political theater. It's political theater in the extreme. And I think Christians, who are the, if, if we say that that's what this is, and we're uh, accused by others of saying, well, what does... Uh, what does the Bible say about reaching out to the downtrodden, reaching out to the the poor and the oppressed? Well, it says that we're supposed to help them. We are really obligated to help them. And so why don't you take them in? Well, I've got a better idea. Why don't we send the Marines to overthrow the government that's causing all the problems in the first place? Don't we have a Good Samaritan obligation? You know, suppose the Good Samaritan had arrived while the guy was still being beaten up. Now what? Now what is his responsibility, right? So you you can't simply transfer across the board what would be the ethical or moral thing for a person to do if it's just me and the other guy, or just me and a mugger, and uh, that mugger's victim. That doesn't necessarily transfer to nations and armies and geopolitical politics. There is a biblical approach to those things. But you don't find out what it is by simply uh, uh, taking individual ethics and writing them up in the sky as though they were um, requirements of God for us. The book I want to review in this uh, episode of the podcast, episode 66, is a book by a gent named uh, Hughes Oliphant Old, now with the Lord, who wrote a book called Worship in the Reformed tradition, worship in the Reformed tradition. 
And uh, what this book will do for you, if you're a pastor or a worship leader or someone who's responsible in any, in any way for uh, putting together the, the liturgy or the worship service of your church, if, um, if you have that responsibility, you want to think, it through, think this task through biblically. Now, in the Reformed tradition, there is a, there is a position uh, that is called—there is a, a name for the principle, which is the regulative principle. And there are certain brethren who are on the right wing of that, um, that, that principle, what I would call strict regulativists, who would put the principle this way. And, and Hughes, Hughes Oliphant Old uh, frames the regulative principle in another way, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, the strict regulativists say, in effect, anything that's not required by, this, by the Scriptures, by the New Testament, as an element in worship is prohibited. So if you've got a particular element in your, um, uh, in your worship service, say your interpretive dance team, and, and they do an interpretive dance during the offertory. Um, and someone says, hey, brother, you know, where's that, uh, where's that in the Bible? Where's that in the New Testament? For a, strict re- for a strict regulativist, he would say, if you don't have a text requiring interpretive dance in the worship service, then interpretive dance is thereby prohibited. If it's not required, it's prohibited. Now, this is in contrast to the Lutheran approach. This, this issue has been with us since the time of the Reformation. Uh, the Lutheran said, if it's not prohibited, if it's not expressly prohibited, it's allowed. So um, we need to have something prohibited before we prohibit it. Uh, so the Lutherans would reject uh, prayers to images, prayers to icons, because that's prohibited. But they would allow a piano or an organ because it's not prohibited. If it's not prohibited, it's therefore allowed. Strict regulativists would say there shouldn't be any instruments in worship because it's no, nowhere in the New Testament are we told that um, we are to uh, use instruments in New Testament worship. They were used in Old Covenant worship, but not in New Testament worship. So that's the, those are the two ends of the regulative principle debate. Now, uh, I want to argue that all Protestants have to be regulativists of some stripe. They have to be regulativists of some sort. But you want to make, be, but you want to be careful because the the uh, statement that which is not expressly required is therefore prohibited is a standard that gets um, applied somewhat capriciously, somewhat arbitrarily. Uh, if you don't. Uh, if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself up a creek without any paddles. So, for example, um, the New Testament does not have us, the New Testament does not give us an example or a precept requiring women to take the Lord's Supper. We have women being baptized in Acts. Uh, Philip baptizes men and women both, but we have no example of women taking the Lord's Supper. So if you apply the strict regulative principle, it's not required, therefore it's forbidden, uh, that means you have to exclude women from the supper. I think a strict regulative 
approach would require Saturday worship because we don't have an express command to worship on the first day of the week on the Lord's Day on Sunday. So that's that's how it works. Now, all of this is a run-up to uh, Old's book, Worship in the Reformed Tradition, which is a biblically uh, grounded, historically literate treatment of liturgics and worship in the Reformed tradition. And um, I really like Old's formulation of the regulative principle. He says, he puts it this way. He says that worship must be according to Scripture. Whatever it is you're doing has to be according to Scripture. So when a visitor comes to your worship service, and he let's say he's a gracious visit, visitor, an interested visitor, and you're talking afterwards at the fellowship hour, and he says, I'm, I'm curious, why, why did you do that? Or why did everybody, everybody kneel in the time of confession? Or, or why did um, everybody stand when the scripture was being read? Well, every, any question that a reasonable visitor might ask is a question that you should be able to answer from the Bible. Worship should be according to scripture. You should say things like, well, um, Paul requires, uh, Paul uh, tells us that we are to uh, uh, give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, and so we do. In Ezra, the people stood when they heard the, they, the people were standing when they heard the law um, being read. We see in Scripture that kneeling is an appropriate posture for prayer, uh, and, and so on. So basically, every element of the worship service is an element that you should be able to talk about from the Bible if someone asks you about it. So rather than saying that which is not expressly prohib- uh, expressly mandated is prohibited, and rather than saying um, that if it's um, not prohibited, then it's allowed, I think it's best to say that we want our worship service, the structure and the content of it, to be preeminently biblical. And, that, and this book, Worship in the Reformed Tradition is going to be a great help um, uh, down that road. So here we are, Podcast 66, and we've come to our hamartiology section, going through the New Testament, looking at all the different Greek words for various sins. One word in the New Testament expresses a virtue negatively. Um, and it's, an, uh, it's a negative reference to a virtue by referencing the sin concerned. The word amakos is rendered as not a brawler in one place. That's in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, and no brawler in another. That's in Titus 3.2. In the first, Paul is describing the character of the ideal elder. He's not to be pugnacious. He's not to be someone that you have to tiptoe around to keep from setting him off. In the second instance, Paul is instructing Titus on the importance of teaching his parishioners to be subject to the civil authorities, quote, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So the context clearly shows here that Paul is referring to the kind of men who can be gathered up for a mob, usually in short order. Um, so a godly man ought not to be part of the recruiting pool uh, for that business called Rent-A-Mob. If you, if you want someone to run downtown and throw rocks through business windows and you want 
to do it on order. You want to use it as a political uh, tactic. You generally have to go to people who can be hired out for that sort of thing. Um, thugs, brawlers are, are the sort of men that we ought not to have in the church, and we absolutely ought not to have on the session of elders. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.